Let me pray as we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Father, we pray now just a very simple prayer that you would make the power of the gospel ever more clear to us, that we would see and know and feel your greatness, that you would continue to change us for our good and your glory. Amen. What does it mean to be strong? Beyond physical strength, I mean, what does a strong person look like? Some might say that a strong person is one who is a person of confidence. Maybe perhaps a person who shows little emotion. Maybe a person who makes decisions quickly. That's what constitutes strength. Winston Churchill's tenure as the Prime Minister of Britain was marked by struggles for strength and for power, and he regularly remarked that his opponents in Parliament were weak. Once he referred to his opponents in the British Parliament as those who decided only to be undecided, resolved to be irresolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, all-powerful to be impotent. I think that when we, when many people think of what makes a person strong, they don't necessarily think of their quality of character or their resolve. Those are internal realities that you have a difficult time seeing unless it's over a longer period of time. Many people tend to merely look at the external when they think of strength. Does he or she command a room? Are they eloquent of speech? Does the tailoring on their jacket indicate that there's someone who knows what they're doing? These are markers of strength in our time today. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, which means that he encountered and was commissioned by Jesus for the work of the gospel. And despite his status and his quality and his character as an apostle, some people looked upon him as though he were a weakling. And these folks started a rebellion in the church of Corinth. Throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, we have witnessed what we might call a dual audience that was receiving this letter in the first century. The first audience was largely to this point, many of those people in the church who were repentant of their past sins and doubts, and they had been following Jesus faithfully now for some time. And he addresses them directly for a large section of the book. And secondarily, he's made repeated reference to those in the church who we would call interlopers. They are not repentant. They continue to stand against the apostle and his message and claim that he is a weakling. And as a result, they stand against the gospel that he brings. They claim to be on the inside following God. But despite their physical proximity to the inside of this church family, they were anything but on the inside. They are the minority group in the church who have had their values flipped upside down and they continue in their lack of repentance. And to this point in the letter, Paul has been 
having his focus on the first group with mention to the second group. But here, as we move to chapter 10, he flips the two. It's important to understand that if you're going to kind of catch the thrust. He now is focusing on engaging directly with those in the church who are rebelling. And chapters 10 through 13 address those people directly. The tone shifts. The content changes. And he begins to talk about war. Even war in the church. Let's read it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. Paul says this. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So as the perspective or the scene shifts in the letter, you can see and begin to feel that there is an underlying issue in this church, which is the perception of what makes a person strong, but not just what makes a person strong. What makes a person strong when it comes to the things of God? Paul's physical demeanor, as we've said before, was not impressive. Nor was his approach to these Corinthians. And in the ancient Greek culture, humility was not a quality that was lauded. In fact, if you were humble, some would say that it was the most obvious sign that you were weak. Arrogance was the sign of strength and influence. Humility was the sign of weakness and the sign of a follower. I wonder if that sounds like any culture that you might know. Because if you look across the arenas of our culture, politics, most notably, business, relationships, and even in contemporary American Christian churches and Christian organizations. Humility may be discussed as a virtue, but it is often the case where the opposite is celebrated as accompanying true and lasting success. Pride and arrogance are signs of strength in the eyes of the culture. Humility is a sign of weakness. But here's the question. What makes a person strong when it comes to the things of God? And Paul engages this Corinthian church with a bit of irony. He says in verse 1, look at it with me. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 
I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. That second part of the phrase, I'm humble when I'm with you, but bold when I'm away, is you can hear it's the mantra of the interlopers. It's the ones who are rising up against him saying, he is all bark and no bite. (laughs) When he's far away, he can speak boldly, as in the letter of 1 Corinthians. But when he is close, he is just another weakling. And so he entreats them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus describes himself in this way. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, In the Gospels, Jesus gives very few descriptions of himself and his attributes. I don't know if you ever caught that as you've read through them a number of times. But it is striking and one of the few occasions that he chooses to describe himself to those he is engaging with. He describes himself in this way, gentle and lowly of heart. The irony of that is this. Jesus though his disposition is that way, throughout the course of his entire life and ministry displayed the exact opposite of that. That Jesus is the one of the greatest strength. He displays this profound strength when he miraculously multiplies food, when he stills storms, when he heals diseases, when he raises people from the dead, when he himself is risen from the dead, and when he forgives sins. There is no greater strength that humankind has ever seen than those types of things. And despite the fact that the one of infinite strength comes to earth in that power, he conducts himself in a manner that is gentle and lowly in heart. And Paul's detractors claim to follow him while decrying these very characteristics of gentleness and lowliness. There's the irony. In mirroring Jesus' disposition, Paul associates himself with Jesus's strength. <laughs> In mirroring Jesus, Jesus's appeared weakness, he is actually associating himself with Jesus's profound strength, even in the midst of this opposition. And he appeals to them in verse two to change their attitude regarding their interactions before he arrives so that he wouldn't have to confront them and be accused of walking in the flesh with that sort of arrogance or boldness or confidence that would make you appear like you were walking in the flesh. What makes a person strong? What makes a person strong in the things of God? Confidence in belief that is expressed in humility, just like Jesus. This Friends, has a lot of different implications for us, but here's just one. (laughs) Very simple. You don't need to be arrogant and condescending about spiritual things. When you rely on Christ and the power of the gospel, your confidence actually leads you to function in great humility with other people. 
You don't need to be a spiritual jerk. (laughs) You can actually be a spiritually nice guy and still have all of the power and even more that comes with the gospel. So Paul remains gentle, but his gentleness points to a greater strength. And in verses 3 through 5, he points to just how serious this strength really is. It's so strong that it will win a war. Look at the verses 3 to 5 and just observe with me as you glance over the page a number of the words that pop out. He talks about, verses 3, waging war. He talks about weapons. He uses the word warfare. He talks about strongholds. He talks about destroying something. He talks about taking something captive. Waging war, weapons, warfare, strongholds, destruction, taking captive. This is war. It's war in the church. (laughs) Now, if you've ever been through a war in the church you know that there's absolutely nothing pleasant about it. (laughs) So why would the Apostle Paul be choosing to engage in this war, even in the church? He's engaging it because the stakes are the absolute highest. This is a rebellion against the gospel, the very core of who this church is, and he will not let this rebellion against the gospel succeed. And he goes on to say that this war is not like traditional warfare on a battlefield. Paul reminds them that though we walk in flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is a war that happens in the spiritual realm. For the Corinthians, war in the flesh, at least in this realm, would probably look like displays of rhetorical brilliance, the use of cunning, impressive vocabulary, perhaps stirring stories of personal victory or unique spiritual revelations or experiences. But this is not the type of war that Paul is engaging in, at least not with those types of weapons. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, he says this. He says, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about these same dynamics of interaction, of argumentation, of strength and power as it relates to people's lives. And he says this, when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so there's a fight brewing, and this fight is for the very gospel itself. The gospel, the core of everything that Jesus did. He paid the penalty for sin, that you would be forgiven and reconciled to God through faith in him and experience not the life you had before, but a new life in him, a life that's ever growing and changing into the person that God would have you to be. 
And so the gospel is at stake here. This rebellion against the gospel messenger was a rebellion against the gospel itself. And so Paul is saying that in this battle, it's the words that wage the war. It's not the style. (laughs) It's the words that wage the war. And the reason why the words wage the war is because God divinely empowers them in three unique ways. And so listen to what these ways are. The first one is that God empowers his word to destroy strongholds. It says the weapons of our warfare are not in the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Think of the word picture with me. A stronghold in an ancient and fortified city was a place where the strength of the city was seen to be some of the greatest. If a stronghold or, or multiple of the strongholds fell, the city was lost. And for Paul to say that his spiritual weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds is to say that these words of the scriptures and of the gospel can get to the very center of the argument of his opponents and rip it apart. God's word is stronger, he says, and it will destroy those arguments. The second military image that he uses is that his weapons have divine power to destroy what we might call high towers. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. Literally, it says in the Greek, every high thing that stands against the knowledge of God. That is, to continue the military metaphor, every high tower. (laughs) As you know, high towers in ancient cities were really important to her defenses. Soldiers would rain down stones on attacking armies. Archers would fire arrows into the midst of oncoming crowds. Workmen would even dump oil off the tower and they would light it on fire as their enemies were trying to break down the gates. To understand what it means that that the word of God divinely destroys high towers or these lofty opinions, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that stands in the way of our knowledge of God? What is it in your human experience and in your life that stands against you knowing God more? And certainly we can answer that question by saying some attempt lofty opinions or arguments or philosophies that prevent you from knowing God more. But beyond that, we can certainly say that personal pride and even strongholds of sin and patterns of behavior in my life can prevent me from knowing and experiencing God as he truly is. And so hear me on that. When Paul says that 
this word breaks down divine high towers, he's saying that it's not just the latest book or most compelling argument from an atheist or a lecture in the university hall or the secular progressive media that continues to function as an outlet for things that are anti-God. It's that our patterns of sinful behavior and pride are also part of that equation that keep us from knowing who God is. But here's the good news. The weapons that Paul refers to, the word of God expressed in the gospel of Jesus that is powered supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, has divine power to tear down towers that rain down flaming arrows at us in an attempt to destroy us. God's word does that. From the halls of Oxford University to the boardrooms of big banks, to the laboratories of MIT, down to the very depths of your soul. Brick by brick, God destroys the citadels of sin and he shines light into the dark places through the gospel. This is a divine or supernatural work. And so that is how you think about the realities of life and how this begins to function. That is how the Oxford Don and the coal miner from West Virginia can have the very same problem in their rebellion against God. Even though one has probably greater opportunity and perhaps a greater intellect, that one can still never simply get there by being smart enough or having more worldly access Because the high towers or lofty arguments or massive internal pride continue to stand in them both, regardless of intellect, regardless of opportunity in this world. God himself is the one who empowers the weapon to save each of them according to his eternal purposes. He destroys the lofty places within us. That is how strong the gospel is. The third reality of this battle is that Paul says we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, there's tremendous power in the mind. For as often as we seek to shut it off (laughs) and sort of breeze through to get to the end of the day, there's tremendous power in the mind. Our thoughts, things that happen up here is what drives you to action. Our thoughts not only drive us to action, but they inform how that action will be carried out. It's our thoughts that are the place where our desires either grow or shrink under further consideration. And for Paul to say that every thought is taken captive, it's not just to say that God now gives you just pure and happy and good thoughts. (laughs) It's way better than that. It's to say that through the power of the gospel, the way that you think changes. When your thoughts become captive by the gospel, the structures of your thinking change within you. 
And that's a powerful reality. That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Karl Barth was a theologian in the early 1900s from Germany. By today's standard, he's considered to be somewhat liberal. By German standards in the early 1900s, he was considered to be conservative. And he was invited to deliver one of the distinguished lectureships at a theological seminary in the East Coast. And while he was there, a group of ministers and theologians and dignitaries of one kind of another came to listen to him and to celebrate him. And they were able to sit down with him in a sort of question and answer period. And someone asked the question of this brilliant, brilliant man. What is the most profound thought that you know, Dr. Bart? And after a pause, he simply said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Why is that so profound? Because the might of the gospel will win the war in the face of all types of rebellion. The strength of the gospel. God's word is strong. It destroys strongholds. It tears down high towers. It takes every thought captive. This is divine warfare and the might of the gospel will win the war in the face of all kinds of rebellion. The rebellion that happens inside of you right here. The rebellion that happens inside of you right here. The rebellion that would happen even in a church where some might be in close proximity but not share in that gospel. And so that begs a question. Begs a question about unity and division. Because there is a type of war that's happening here in this text and it's going to continue on in the next couple chapters and it's happening in the church. And, and some of you might be asking the question, well, hey, I thought the church was called to be a place of unity. And if that's the case, then why is Paul waging spiritual war in the church? Jesus says it's going to be unity that the world is going to know. It's going to be love that how they're going to know who you are and what you stand for. Shouldn't we be doing the same thing? Well, let me make a couple of observations. Number one, remember the context here. This rebellion is not merely a difference of opinion on a secondary aspect of Christian living or a third-tier theological issue. We might call those things disagreements. But this issue was much greater than that of just mere disagreement. This issue was against the very authority of the apostle and the word of God itself that he preached in rebelling against the gospel they rebelled against Jesus himself the fight was over the core the gospel and so then what does that mean functionally speaking it means that unity even in a group of people like this unity is not simply based on shared proximity to one another or shared activities like gathering every Sunday morning at 9.15 to sing and to pray and to hear God's word and to give to him and to give to each other. That true unity is based on shared gospel belief 
that leads to increased faith and faithfulness. And notice the tone and his tact. Even in the midst of this type of rebellion, Paul is gentle. (laughs) It is the word that wages the war. And he's not merely trying to drive some away. He is actually trying to win them back. (laughs) And in this war, God will indeed win some back to himself as the strongholds and towers and thoughts are taken captive because the might of the gospel will win. It will win the war in the face of all kinds of rebellion. And so verse 6 concludes this very short section with a phrase that's powerful in its nature. He says that the church, he and the church, must be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When your obedience is complete, meaning there are many in the church who are following Christ faithfully and Paul is asking them, those who are faithful, to disassociate themselves with those who call themselves Christians but they don't believe the gospel. He's calling them to push away gospel distortions of the work of Christ and the implications of it. The power of the gospel warfare is coming to Corinth and those who don't turn back to the Lord will be disciplined by their local church family and they will be either found to be repentant or sent away. And the same holds true today, friends. Because unity is not based on proximity. (laughs) It's not based on shared activity. Unity is based on shared belief that leads to increasing faith and faithfulness. And so there is great gentleness and desire for those who don't trust Jesus. Even those of you who are here today who still don't know what you think about Jesus. You haven't put your faith in him. You haven't committed to him, but you're checking this out. There is great gentleness and desire for those who don't trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and have yet to choose to follow him with their lives. There's great desire that you would come to him. And God even wages an incredible spiritual war in your heart and your mind to win you to just that. But there is also a call to flee from arrogant or haughty leaders or teachers who oppose the scripture's teaching on the gospel of grace. He calls us to be clear about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. He calls us to reject distortions of the gospel. And there's a lot that we could say about those types of distortions. And there remains then church discipline as an action of the believers to distinguish what is true and what is false and to put down that kind of spiritual rebellion. Friends, the might of the gospel will win the war in the face of all types of rebellion. In 1996, two military strategists named Harland, Ulaman, and James Wade started advocating a more focused approach to war. 
Ulan and Wade argued for engaging the enemy with an overwhelming show of force that will destroy the adversary's will to resist before, during, and after the battle. They titled their book, Shock and Awe. Shock and Awe is also known as Rapid Dominance. It's defined as a military doctrine based on the use of overwhelming power, dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and to destroy its will to fight. The goal is to render your opponent impotent by using superior technology, precision engagement, and information dominance. Shortly before the Iraq the first Iraq war, Ulaman described what would happen with this shock and awe approach. He said, you're sitting in Baghdad and all of a sudden you're the general and 30 of your division headquarters have been wiped out. You also take down the city and by that I mean you get rid of the water and the power and in two or three or four or five days they are physically emotionally and psychologically exhausted. Rapid dominance. <laughs> Shock and awe. It's amazing to me that in response to human sin and evil that God could use shock and awe. He could have employed rapid dominance to crush us with his overwhelming power dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, spectacular displays of force. But instead, the God of all authority and power chose a radically different strategy. <laughs> he chose redemptive love. He chose being delivered into the hands of sinners and then laying down his life at the cross. No wonder Paul had to acknowledge the foolishness of cross to a culture that that lauds arrogance and pride. And at the same time, he displays a tremendous patient strength in this power of the gospel. It breaks down strongholds and high towers and it takes every thought captive through this word. The might of the gospel, not the might of your personality, <laughs> Not the might of your argument, not the might of your demeanor, not the might of your social status, not the might of things external. It's the might of the gospel that will win this war in the face of all types of rebellion. That is good news for you. That's <laughs> good news for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for waging patient and gentle and loving but strong divine warfare even in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, in our church. God, you are the mighty one. Your son, Jesus, though gentle and lowly of heart, displays the greatest of strength and power. And so we ask for that type of power all the more. Increase our unity. 
Increase the spiritual power in this place. Continue to win the battle of strongholds and towers and thoughts for the sake of our good and your glory. God, we love you. We're encouraged by you. Help us to live faithful, we pray. Amen.